Well, good morning. Um, once again, just uh, thankful for the great um, service this morning already with the music and um, just the great words that we've sung and heard and uh, the testimony of what God is doing through uh, Joseph and excited about what we get to hear in a year from now or along the way. <clears throat> um, but we're still in Judges this morning. We're almost there. Wes is... Uh, Lord willing, going to wrap up next week, unless he feels like those last three chapters are just way too much, I guess. He's, he's got some leeway there. He could maybe go an extra week. But um, as I was preparing for this, um, as I was reading through this story this more, or this week and the last couple of weeks as we were preparing, um, do, you, uh, do you remember a time when you were either a little kid or high school age uh, something like that, where you did something really bad and you knew uh, that when you told dad and mom or maybe grandma and grandpa or whoever it was that things were probably not going to be pretty. Have anybody remember anything like that? Maybe, maybe not. Not really seeing too many heads shake. Um, I guess I would, as I was, I'd consider myself a pretty good kid growing up. I think that was a combination of my personality and the fact that I was the youngest of five children. Um, I saw a lot of stupid growing up. Um, I was also one of the youngest of, of my cousins. I was like, my dad had like, uh, I think five or six siblings. And so I, I was also one of the youngest of my cousins. So, I mean, combine that with my family. And so like, I was able to learn a lot um, from my older siblings and cousins of what, um, what the repercussions were um, when things went wrong or you made stupid decisions. Um, I think that explains when I was trying to remember, like, oh, what, when was the time when I was a kid that I remember really screwing up um, and being terrified to go tell my parents? And the first things that pop into my head are always related to my siblings for some reason. It's always things they did. Um, like the time uh, my brother and I were home alone. I don't remember how old we were. Um, but uh, for some reason, I, I must have done something to make him mad. I'm not really sure what it was. But um, as I'm running away from him, escaping his, you know, his grasps as he tries to get me, I was able to escape to my bedroom and obviously slam my door shut. And it must have not had a lock because I remember I got down and I put my back to the door and I was the perfect Right against the wall of the closet door, making it an impenetrable fortress so that he couldn't get in. Um, and he was trying to get in. Me, He wasn't very happy with me for whatever reason. Um, and so because he couldn't get in, he takes his anger out on the door and gets it a nice big kick. Um, and we learned a valuable lesson about uh, the integrity of hollow core interior doors that day um, with a hole ending up in the middle of it or in the bottom of it. Uh, I'm pretty sure we tried to cover that with a poster. Um, it didn't work very well. That or we just decided that this is a really bad idea and we just need to fess up before mom and dad find out. Um, <clears throat> so that was kind of one of the stories that came to my mind. Um, the other one was maybe that actually was involving me is when I rolled my dad's uh, pickup in high school. Um, I was going to meet a friend for, I think we were going to a girls basketball game or something like that. And, uh, I felt like I was running late. I was probably spent too long talking to Rhonda after high school, after school that day. Um, and so I was, I was flying, I was going too fast. Um, and the combination of rain, muddy gravel roads, high speeds of 65 miles an hour, and inexperienced driving um, 
created me um, the perfect conditions for me to roll my dad's pickup. Um, I'm pretty sure he hadn't had it that long either, um, and he was really happy to have a pickup, something that we didn't always have growing up. Um, and by God's grace, I rolled once, I landed on the wheels, I didn't go in either ditch, which would have been a disaster. Um, and uh, I, I remember I walked uh, half a mile to the next nearest uh, farmhouse that was there, it was out in the country. And uh, <clears throat> I remember picking up the phone, calling my dad, and I was, I was so nervous because I had to tell him that I had just rolled his pickup. Um, and probably, I probably would have rather been in the back of an ambulance on the way to a hospital than making that phone call because I just was so afraid of what was going to happen when I had to tell him um, what, what happened there and that I just messed up his, his pickup. The funny thing, or not funny thing, is our story in Judges, beginning in Judges 17, is a similar type of story, um, except it's between a son and a mother, but instead of being a little kid and a mom, it's an adult and adult son and his mom. So if you want to open your Bibles to Judges 17, if you haven't, um, we're going to see what we can learn from another bizarre story. But before we go into the story, there's two things I want to do real quick. I want to give some questions that when we look at um, these narrative passages, you could call them, or these stories in the Bible, I want to give us some questions that we can help us, how do we learn from it? Because if it's just a story, there's not teaching, there's not doctrine, how, how do we understand that? How do we apply it? So I want to do that real quick. And then I also, we also need to look at the chronology of like, where do these events um, in chapter 17, really 17 through 21, fit in the chronology of judges and, the, and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so when we look at these stories of the Bible, or I was reminded actually this summer that these aren't stories, this is history, right? This isn't, these aren't just made up, this is real, these happen. There's four questions that I think we can ask ourselves when we read these stories, these narratives. Um, the first one is, is the story descriptive or prescriptive? And Wes, just, Wes and I just had this discussion about Acts 2 again and how people always think Acts 2 is a prescription of how the church should function. It's not. It's a, a description of what was happening in Acts in that time frame. So is the story that you're reading, is it describing something that happened or is it giving us a prescription of how things should happen? So when you're reading a story, that's the first question. Um, another easy question is, does the story reveal something about God? Does it reveal something about his character or how he works um, that we can learn from? The third question is, is there an example to follow, right? There's a lot of good examples in scripture of faith um, and other things that we can follow, that we can learn from, and we can look to them and say, yes, I want to be like that. Or the fourth one is what we're going to focus on today, is there a mistake to learn from? Um, so those are the four questions. Is the story descriptive or prescriptive? Does it reveal something about God? Is there an example to follow, and is there a mistake to learn from? Um, and so, like I said, we're going to see in Judges 17 and 18 today two mistakes that we can actually learn from. The other thing that I said is the, uh, the chronology. When does this happen? Judges 17 through 21 are really kind of one continuous story, um, one bizarre, another bizarre story in the book of Judges. And... Um, 
we really need to look at where does this happen? Because in one sense, I talked about a few weeks ago that Judges is kind of like, it's this spiraling downward towards more sin and depravity. Um, but when you think of it that way, and then you get to Judges 17 through 21, you think like, well, this is the climax of their sin and depravity at the end of this time period is where, was where I kind of came in thinking about it. But when, we, when you look at it, and I was reading, and Wes kind of helped me with some of the, um, the things that he was reading, a lot of scholars see Judges 17 to 21 actually happening shortly after the events in chapters 1 and 2. Um, and so I know many of you uh, younger people don't understand what these are. These are books. Um, and these things, I don't have fancy ones, um, but these are bookends, right? They are kind of there to... Um, hold things together if you have a bookshelf, one of those ancient things. Um, oh, that way, there you go. Um, they're, they're bookends, right? They hold the things together. And you can kind of think of Judges chapters 1 and 2 as one bookend and chapters 17 through 21 as the other bookend that kind of hold these stories of Judges together. And in chapters 1 and 2, we see kind of what leads to the need for a judge, these judges, for God to raise up judges to deliver the people. And in 17 through 21, the author, the narrator, is um, showing us that the sin and depravity, this didn't work. The judges didn't work, right? It just kept, that cycle kept going so that the next thing that's going to try to happen is God is going to try to bring a king to bring them back to right worship. Um, and the Moody Bible commentary, oh, wrong one. The Another commentary that I read, a commentator put it this way. He's saying the book closes, the book of Judges, therefore, not with a return to the opening state, but with a digression to a worse state, even as the narrator looks for a new type of leader who will guide the nation into purity of worship. Um, so the judges didn't, couldn't accomplish um, leading the people back to God. Um, and so it's almost like uh, he's giving a specific example of a story that happened um, in 17 through 21 that show the need for something different. Um, and they're going to try a king as you go in through the rest of history of the Bible. So that's kind of where we're at today. So let's jump into chapter 17 and look at our first bad example that we can learn from. Um, Judges chapter 17, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver taken from you and that I heard you utter a curse about, here, I have the silver with me. I took it. So now I return it to you. Then his mother said, My son, you are blessed by the Lord. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit to make a carved image overlaid with silver. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith. He made it into a carved image overlaid with silver, and it was in Micah's house. This man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols, and installed one of his sons to be his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. <clears throat> so this 
interesting story of a of a lady who's got 1,100 pieces of silver. Now that could be like her life savings. You got to realize they didn't have like a bank you could go deposit your money in back then. Um, or in, in all, either way, it's a considerable amount of money um, and she has it stolen from her. Um, and as after it's stolen, she utters a curse, kind of like, you know, cursed be the person who stole this, maybe like you'd hear in a movie or something like that. Um, something that we're not necessarily uh, used to hearing, but you know, we, I think you know what I mean. Not knowing that her son is actually the one who stole it. And her son, Micah, superstitious as he is, overhears her uttering this curse against the person who stole her money and comes back um, and confessing his wrong, almost hat in hand. I had to borrow a hat from Ethan. It's almost like, you know, he's kind of coming, you know, mom, that, um, you know, that 1,100 pieces of silver you lost? No, I didn't lose it. Somebody stole it. Yeah, I, I, I took that. You know, and then, and then the crazy thing is, is the mom, instead of being like, angry or upset or frustrated and having some kind of consequences. Oh, it's okay. God bless you. You know, and then she takes the money, even more weird. Um, and you're trying to figure out like what's going through her head. She takes the money and she says she, she consecrates it to God. Um, my Bible has the words Lord capitalized, which is the personal name for God, Yahweh. So it's not like she's just consecrating this to gods or a little god or some other god she personally says this money is going to be set apart for god and then she takes it and makes an idol out of it um, in contradiction to um, the the whole law and everything that moses you know had written down and so this just it's this very kind of weird progression of events that are happening that just continue to show how far the nation of Israel had fallen. Um, and remember that this isn't like, you know, hundreds of years after they came into the promised land. Um, like I said, this is shortly after we're going to see at the end of chapter 18 that um, there's a major character in this story. The Levite is the grandson of Moses, okay, which means that probably this lady, this mom, would have been, uh, you know, probably a contemporary of Joshua and seen them come into the promised land and seen God conquer those things. And her son, you know, Micah, and one generation away from seeing the amazing things that God has done. And they're already at the point where they're taking the little bit that they know about God and then they're adding it bringing all these things that they're seeing of the religions and the unbelievers around them of idol worship and um, all of these other and things and trying to mix it all together, hope they have their, all their bases covered. It's kind of what it seems like Mike is doing. He's taking a little bit from, um, you know, Christianity and he's taking a little bit from this religion over here and he's taking a little bit from the, the Philistines and the Amorites and just mixing it all together. He creates his own little temple in his house. He installs one of his sons to be a priest, um, hoping that he has um, all of his bases covered so that he will be blessed. Um, and you get to verse 6 where the narrator says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you're kind of like, well, duh. Like it's not that hard to figure that out from what, we're, what we've just read. Like it's pretty obvious that they're just doing whatever they think is the right thing. And it reminds us of one of the three main lessons that we keep seeing over and over again in Judges. 
And yes, Mason, I think you're sitting upstairs. We do keep saying the same thing over and over again because we need to be reminded of it. If Mason can pick up the fact one of our three lessons, then almost everybody should be able to pick up one of the three lessons. And the main thing we're going to see today is that every generation must choose, right? Every generation has a choice to make, um, and you can even personalize that a little more. Every person has a choice to make. Um, Sometimes a generation has to choose to abandon either the false worship or the traditions or the wrong things of previous generations. That's what Micah should have done, right? His mom was leading them towards idolatry, into idolatry, his whole family, obviously. He had a choice to make to, to reject that and follow God, and he did not make that choice. Um, <clears throat> I just heard the testimony and you think, well, that's really hard. Like if somebody, a family is not following God and you don't hear the right things growing up, um, that's, that's really hard to make that change um, from what your family believes to what the truth of the gospel is. But I just heard a story um, this last week about someone who didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I'm sure you've heard many of them before as well, and when they go off to college and they hear the gospel and they respond to that and become a follower of Jesus despite the fact that they didn't grow up in a Christian home. So every generation has to choose. And every time, really, every time you come across a truth of the Bible or every time you hear the gospel if you're not a believer, is an opportunity for you to respond and choose to believe it. And sometimes we reject that, whether it's the gospel, people rejecting the gospel, or whether it's a Christian coming across a truth in the Bible that they didn't understand or know before. Um, You can either choose to reject it or you choose to embrace it and accept it and have it change your life. Um, so, unfortunately, that's, the, that's not the example that we're seeing here. Um, it continues on in verse 7. The story just continues to spiral. Um, it says, There was a young man, a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who resided within the clan of Judah. The man left the town of Bethlehem in Judah to settle wherever he could find a place. On his way, he came to Micah's home in the hill country of Ephraim. Where do you come from? Micah asked him. He answered him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to settle wherever I can find a place. Micah replied, stay with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you four ounces of silver a year, along with your clothing and provisions. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. So we have a Levite. And if you don't know what a Levite is, basically um, there was 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. Um, And they were all descended from the 12 sons of Jacob, right? Jacob had 12 sons. Every single son then kind of grew into a tribe of people. Um, And there was an instance in the Bible where the Levite tribe um, showed great uh, faith and trust in God when they were in the um, wandering around in the wilderness. And because of that, God set apart the Levites for the specific purpose of serving him at the temple. 
Um, so when the temple was built um, and they had all of the, you know, the curtains and the inner court and the, the sacrifices that all had to be made, uh, the Levites were responsible, um, had been given the privilege in all reality of being the people who, who took care of all of that. Um, they, they administered, um, you know, helping get the sacrifices ready and all of the things with the temple that had to be done. Um, and so even at this point, two generations removed from Moses and the people coming into the promised land, um, you see that it, he was the Levite. He's not in um, a specific city. Uh, that was the other thing about the Levites. Of the 12 tribes, they weren't given a specific area of land to live in because um, God was going to provide for them as they administered the services at the temple. So they weren't given a specific portion of Israel. Um, and so we see that even already, not shortly removed from Moses, this Levite and probably many others um, had abandoned the, that um, privilege of serving at the temple and he's almost like he's basically looking for work wherever he can find it um, because his needs are not being met because people aren't worshiping God the way they're supposed to be worshiping by bringing sacrifices and offerings to the temple um, so their needs aren't being met so they gotta go find a way to meet those needs um, in any way that they can. Um, the Moody, this is where the Moody Bible Commentary points out that he, uh, the Levite, was from Bethlehem, which was not one of the specific Levitical cities, suggesting that by this time the Levites had probably been scattered because of lack of support and sought any sort of living they uh, could find. And I doubt Micah was put a help wanted sound wanted ad out in the newspaper, right? He, he just figures this is like God's blessing, that a Levite happens to wander across his house, um, and he thinks that because this man comes from a specific tribe um, that God has supposedly blessed for the service of the temple, that he's going to be a better option as a priest than his son. Um, and he just thinks that this is God's favor looking out for him. Um, and notice his warped theological view in verse 13. It says, uh, Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. Um, he just thinks that God's going to bless him because he's, he's doing what, partially what God wanted them to do. And as I, as I was thinking about this section and the, the, the example that we can learn from, um, it's almost like Micah is making half-hearted attempts to obey God, right? There was specific ways that God had asked the Israelites to worship him, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't vague. They were, you know, they had offerings and sacrifices to make. They had feasts and things and special days to remember all the things that God had done for them, um, but instead of doing those things, the Israelites had started to, to do some of those things. Well, he's a Levite, right? That's partially God's way of doing things. But then I'm going to have my own household temple. I'm going to have my own idols. I'm going to have my own things. Um, and I wonder how often are we expecting God to bless our half-hearted attempts to worship him? Um, are we so much different than Micah when we come to church on Sundays? Or maybe we just, we even come to church events. Maybe we even serve um, in a specific way as an usher or an Awana helper. Yet the rest of the week, we spend our time um, and our resources doing what we want, fulfilling our desires. 
Now, that doesn't mean you're necessarily doing horrible things. Like I've been in times where maybe I'm going through the motions um, and those motions aren't sin. You know, maybe I'm not stuck in an addiction or, you know, living an immoral lifestyle, but I'm not surrendered to God. Um, I'm serving my own self-interests and hobbies instead of serving God's interests and what God wants me to do. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you have to be in church and be involved in church activities to be serving God um, and doing things that honor God. It's more the attitude of our hearts. Micah thought that if he just did enough of the right things that God would find favor with him. And I think, especially I, I would say in my own life, and I think probably is it true in most people, that I think deep down when we're in that spot where we're either, like Matt was talking last week, just going through the motions um, and serving our own interests, really, but then doing things outwardly that we think um, God likes, I think deep down when we're in that spot, our consciences um, know if we aren't worshiping God wholeheartedly. Um, and when we're in that spot, the response is, is really the same as when we hear the gospel, to confess our sins, um, to repent of them, which means to turn doing that thing, stop doing that, stop doing the wrong thing, start doing the right thing, um, and uh, choose to take the steps of obedience. Um, there were three, three specific words for worship in the Old Testament. Um, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce them because I do not know Hebrew um, and they were difficult. Uh, Hebrew is difficult to say if you, if you know what you're talking about. But there's three specific words for worship in the Old Testament. And I think it's interesting how these three words give us different uh, aspects of what it means to worship God. The first one means to literally bow down. Um, so like the physical act of bowing down. Um, and when you are bowing, when you, when you willingly bow down to somebody, um, that there's an act of surrender and submission. It's an attitude of that I am going to surrender and submit to you. Um, it comes across in like verses like Psalm 29:2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship, bow down to the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Or Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So there's that first one, which means to bow down. The second one um, denotes both a sense of terror and a sense of awe and worship. Um, so there's kind of that, that fear of the Lord that the Old Testament talks about. Um, and despite the fact that God is for us, God has amazing things for us. You know, he's, he's given us salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, um, if there is not a sense of terror and awe for who God is um, in his character, um, then your view of God is probably insufficient. Um, he is the creator of the universe. Um, he, there's so much about him that, should, um, that we should come with a sense of awe and terror of who he is and what he can do and the things that he has done for us. So that's the second word for worship. And the third word for worship means to serve. Um, and when we surrender to God and we understand who he is, we want to serve him. It's not done out of obligation. 
It's done out of love for him. So that sense of surrender, that sense of awe, and that sense of worship are really a good barometer of whether you are worshiping God for who he is and in the right attitude of the heart, um, or if you're just doing it to go through the motions. If those three things are not characteristic of your heart and your mind, um, then your worship is God, of God is probably outward acts um, that do not please him, a lot like what we see from Micah. <clears throat> so Micah is our first example that we can learn from. And in chapter 18, we have the second example that we can learn from. And I knew I was going to spend the bulk of my time on chapter 17 um, because of, I think, the, the truths and the things that we see in there. Um, so I'm going to kind of try to summarize chapter 18. I'm not going to read through it all. Um, and we'll look at another example that we can learn from, an example of somebody, um, actually an entire tribe, that did something wrong. So let's see if I can um, get all of these points without forgetting specific um, important ones in chapter 18. You can kind of follow along in your Bible if you want to. But So the focus shifts from Micah and the Levites um, to a, another tribe in Israel, uh, the tribe of Dan. Um, and the tribe of Dan, like I said, they're one of the tribe, 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, notice in verse 18, verse 1, though, we see that again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Um, just like we saw in, in the middle of chapter 17. Everyone was doing whatever they thought right. Um, <clears throat> so the tribe of Dan, like we said, when, when the Israelites came into the nation of Israel... Every tribe was given a specific area of land that they were told to conquer, drive out the people that were in that land so that they could live there and God would bless them and provide for them using that land. Um, the tribe of Dan was given a portion of land kind of on um, closer to the coast um, on the west side, I think if my directions are right, of Israel, um, but they had the unfortunate uh, task of trying to drive out the Philistines um, and the Amorites. And um, the Philistines were probably a, a superior military strength to them, and this was um, a difficult task. Um, and like many of the tribes of Israel, it wasn't just the tribe of Dan that failed in this respect. Lots of the tribes, we learned if you go back to Judges 1 and 2, one of the characteristics of what got them into this situation is most of the tribes failed to completely drive the people out of their land. Um, the Danites couldn't do it. They were struggling to conquer the people that were there. So the part of our story that comes to is they send five guys from their tribe out to scope out the land and try to find a spot that's easier to conquer, that is, is so that they can find somewhere to live. They need a place to live. These five guys, they come across Micah's house um, and his shrine, his little temple, and his Levite priest, and they think, well, why not? Let's go see if this guy can inquire of the Lord and see if what we're doing is actually going to uh, succeed or fail. Uh, that was pretty common of that time period to, to come to a priest or a prophet or somebody who um, people thought had a kind of a direct connection to God and say, you know, is this, is this, a, this thing that we're wanting to do, is, it gonna, is, is good things going to happen or is it going to fail? Um, the priest gives him the go-ahead. Yep, God's with you. Whether he actually knew anything or not, we, is probably, we're not really sure. Um, so they go up, they find a, a piece of land on the very northern part of Israel it's like way as the far, farthest north um, um, in the land of Israel. They find a people that's basically kind of soft and unsuspecting. Um, they come back. They get their 
tribe, their family, their military, um, roused up, ready to go. They say, yep, we found a perfect spot. These people are, are weaker than we are. Um, they're unsuspecting. We can come in and wipe them out and take over. It's a great place to live. You know, they got everything that we need. So on their way back up to the northern part of Israel, they, uh, they st- take another stop at Micah's house because this guy has a priest. He's got idols. He's got a temple. Um, and they steal all of that and kind of force slash ask the Levite to come with them. I mean, it's kind of like a guy putting a gun to your head and saying, you want to stay here or do you want to come with us? <laughs> like he probably didn't, there wasn't much left for him to have. Once they, if the Levite had, you know, all of the idols were gone and all of the money was gone and everything that went with his temple was gone, then what's the point of him staying there? So they steal his idols, they steal his priest, um, and despite a futile attempt for Micah to stop them, um, they continue on to their new home. They are successful with their military conquest. They drive out the people. They rebuild their cities. And then not only do they do that, but at the end of chapter 18, it says that the Danites in verse 30 set up the carved image for themselves. Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the Danite tribe until the time of the exile from the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image that he had made, and it was there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. And we see the lessons I think that we learn from them is the reality that sometimes obedience to God requires a really hard thing, okay? That whole phrase that God doesn't give you more than you can handle is partially true at best, right? Try telling that to the Danite tribe that had to drive out the Philistines with their iron chariots, right? Um, So instead of obeying God in the really hard thing, and I'm not saying that would have been easy, right? We've seen some miraculous things happen in the book of Judges. It would have taken a miracle for them to drive out the Philistines. Um, But it was what God had commanded. And if they would have been walked in obedience to him, I'm fully confident that he would have provided because that's who he is. He's a faithful God. Um, So instead of doing that, the really hard thing, they go and find an easier way to find land, Um, and, and which isn't, it was totally kind of out on the northern parts of Israel, not the part that God had given to them. And instead of relying on God to give them power, or instead of relying on God to give us power when he asks us to walk in obedience, or give us the strength that we need to do a hard thing, uh, we often find a different way to accomplish something, right? And it's not really full obedience, Right? If God is telling you to do a specific thing, and there are lots of specific commands on how to live in the Bible. They're not easy, okay? especially in our day and age today. Okay? Love one another, love your enemies. Go to Matthew 5, and chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? There's lots of ways where Jesus says, you have heard it said, do this, but I'm saying it's a lot more than what you think. Okay? Not to lust, to to not to hate your enemies, but to love your enemies. All of those things that God commands, instead of doing those fully, relying on his strength and power, we find an easier way that's not quite full obedience, just like the tribe of Dan did. And the other thing is that we see here is just because you're being successful in life and things are going really well, 
doesn't mean you're walking in obedience to God, right? If you were on the outside looking in at the tribe of Dan, it's like, yeah, they're doing pretty good. They found a nice place to live. They were successful in taking over the people. They've got what they need, um, but it's not full obedience. They're not walking in obedience to God. They figured out a way to accomplish what they wanted to do, and it's just that, yeah, well, but God is giving us a spot to live, but it's not what he wanted. So we have two examples that we see in Judges 17 and 18 that we can learn from. The example of Micah and the Levites who really were worshiping God with just kind of half-hearted obedience, not full obedience. Um, and then the example of the Danites who were the same thing, half-hearted obedience, not fulfilling what God has given them the commands to do. And when I look at my own life, I find a lot of the same things, Right? It may not look as crazy of a story as we see in Judges in 17 and 18, um, but how often do I half-heartedly obey or half-heartedly choose to give God my full time, my full talents, my full um, you know, experience in life that he has given me, the work that I do, everything that I do to honor and worship him. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.